You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. My guest is David Bacon. He is the author of Illegal People, How Globalization Creates Migration and Criminalizes Immigrants. Thank you so much for being with us today, Kevin. Very pleased to be here. So let's begin with the title of your book. You talk about illegal, how this word has become a one-word mantra for the U.S. political debate. Talk a little bit about your deliberate use of this word. Who does it include and who is excluded when we use this term? I think I want to say two things about the use of the word illegal. First, in terms of using it in the title of the book, people who have been fighting for the rights of immigrants in the United States have been fighting for a long time, 30, 40 years, to try to um, change the vocabulary that's used, especially in the mass media, to talk about people who come to the United States without visas, and especially to um, get to refer to people as undocumented people rather than the common term in the media, which is the illegals. In other words, the use of illegal as a noun to describe people be illegals or un- illegal. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, undocumented is kind of like, in a way, a pretty factual description of situation of a person who comes here without a visa. In other words, they don't have documents. So when I use the word illegal people in the title of the book, um, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to get a lot of um, static from people who I've worked with for a long time over the use of the word. But I did it deliberately because I think that in many ways, talking about the illegal status of people, you're describing something that actually exists. It's a reality that um, there is such a thing as illegal status, and we need to take a look at where it comes from and, of course, fight to end it. Using the word in the title of the book is a way of saying to people, if we don't like a second-class status, if we don't like illegality, then we have to actually change the social reality. We can't just simply change the name for something and then change the reality by doing that. You know, we don't live in a magical world where you can change the names for things and then the reality changes because you do that. It works the other way around. You know, we have social movements that fight for equality and that by fighting for equality and achieving it, at least in part, um, we are going to be able to change the language as a result. That's what happened in the civil rights movement. That's why there was all that debate about how African-American people referred to themselves first as colored people and then as Negroes and then as blacks and then as African-Americans. You know, in a way, that all tracked the development of the civil rights movement in the United States and how um, people themselves, African-American people themselves, looked at themselves and referred to themselves as they organized the sit-ins and the demonstrations in the South and the other things that were part of that massive movement for social equality. So here what we have is another aspect of social inequality, illegality. And in a way, you know, they're, they're very connected because when you think about where illegality in the United States came from, um, it has its roots in slavery. It was slavery in the U.S. that first created a society in which some people had rights and other people didn't. In fact, slavery was sort of like the most brutal form of 
denying people their social rights because it not only denied people civil rights, but it denied their status as human beings entirely. You know, when the Constitution of the United States was um, originally written and passed, a slave was considered as three-fifths of a human being, not because they had three-fifths of the rights of a white person, but because this was a sort of an accounting trick that slaveholders in the South used in order to uh, increase the number of congressional representatives that their states were entitled to. In other words, those slaves, those three-fifths of human beings, were counted um, for the purposes of determining how many representatives those states were entitled to, although those same people were um, not only not entitled to choose those representatives or to vote, but they were not free in any other sense. So this, it was slavery that kind of created this second-class status and this idea of illegality, which then gets applied to other groups of people, mostly on the basis of nationality and race in the history of um, the development of the United States. So it gets applied to Chinese people in 1882 with the Chinese Exclusion Act, and Chinese people, in a sense, become the first people made illegal by a U.S. immigration law. But, you know, Filipinos were treated the same way, Mexicans were treated. So each group of people had a particular way in which illegality was created and enforced by our immigration laws and our nationality laws. But really... Um, it's the same process and the same kind of goal, which was to create a second-class status, especially for people of color coming from other countries. And the reason for it is always, always the same, basically, and that is that illegality is a source of profit, that when you make people illegal, when you deny them their social, political, and economic rights, people who use their labor can... Um, get it at a very, very, very low price. So this is what happened on the plantations in the South during the days of slavery. Um, and by creating illegality today, um, essentially what you're doing is you're taking 12 million people who are the people here in the United States without papers, and you are making them very, very vulnerable socially and politically and economically. And the people who employ that labor are able to pay very, very low wages for it and treat people in a way that uh, basically denies them their rights as not only as workers, but as full human beings. That's what's happening in Arizona right now as we speak. And that's such an important point, that there are uh, very lucrative benefits for those who exploit the legality or the status of people when we accept that this is okay. It's okay to have two stratas, one of legal people and one of people that we can use that are disposable and that, you know, serve our needs. When you were talking about this um, idea of legality, it occurred to me that when you talk to people about these issues, um, as an immigrant, the first response that comes out of people who are not aware of the contextual background, they say, well, if you don't like it, there's the door. Why don't you leave? I wonder if you could touch a little bit on this because very seldom do we make the connection that the we displaced them first, right? <laughs> people who came here from Mexico, people who are coming from Latin America are coming because they're being displaced by war, they're being displaced by privatization, all of those. So if you could 
give us some examples of the way people have been forced to migrate and how that uh, forced migration then becomes the way they are farther exploited and make vulnerable in our society. Well, I could give you a couple examples of it, but before before I do, I just want to say that you know these are examples of sort of like a worldwide economic system, which is really displacing people all over the world in poor countries and kind of kind of forcing people into migration to. Um, wealthier countries where people go looking for jobs and survival for their families. So, you know, we have now in the world about 200 million people who are living outside the countries where they were born, who are overwhelmingly going from developing countries to developed ones, or poor ones to rich ones, or to industrial countries, or however you want to look at it. So as the example, let's, well, let's just take a look at, you know, one little piece of it, which is the North American Free Trade Agreement. That went into effect on January 1st, 1994. From that moment to the present, about 6 million people from Mexico have come to live here in the United States. And that trade agreement had a lot to do with why those people came. Because NAFTA was part of a whole series of economic changes that took place in Mexico, whose main purpose was to allow foreign corporations, especially from the United States, to make money. So let's give an example. You know, the NAFTA said that Mexico had to allow U.S. grain companies to um, export grain into Mexico and sell it at whatever price they wanted to. So companies like Archer Daniels Midland, um, Continental Grain Company, Cargill, which are huge multinational corporations from the United States that grow grain, corn especially, um, in the U.S. and get subsidized by our government. Our farm bill, our last farm bill, gave these grain companies $2 billion in subsidies. So they used those subsidies to cut their production costs for grain, in other words, allowing them to sell it at a very, very low price, and they dumped it on the Mexican market. NAFTA also said that Mexico could not pay subsidies to its own farmers. In other words, it couldn't buy corn from Mexican farmers at artificially high prices to allow people to stay on the land, which is what Mexico had been doing um, for since the 1930s, really. So as a result of that, small farmers, especially in southern Mexico, in states like Oaxaca and Chiapas and Guerrero and Puebla, um, couldn't afford to grow corn and sell it because the selling price was lower than what it actually cost them to grow that corn. Well, that caused an enormous crisis in tiny corn-growing towns all over southern Mexico because people had no way of earning a living. Um, And as a result of that, people had to do whatever it took for them to survive. And what that really meant was leaving home, leaving those towns, and going first to cities in Mexico, Mexico City or the cities of the north or the maquiladores along the border looking for work, and a lot of those folks crossing the border looking for work in a way of supporting their families here in the United States. And those same companies, those same food companies, then also used the labor of those people once they got here. I'll give you another example. Smithfield Foods, which is one of the largest meat producers here in the United States. Smithfield set up a huge hog-growing um, operation in the Mexican state of Veracruz in a valley called La Gloria. And the scale of this was so great, 
and the lack of restrictions on this company um, by the weak Mexican government. It's not that Mexico doesn't have pollution laws, but Mexico kind of is under pressure not to enforce those laws in order to attract investment by companies like Smithfield. So Smithfield raised thousands and thousands of hogs and took the effluent from those hogs and put it into huge ponds there, which um, made that valley really unlivable. So the people who lived in the small towns of that valley were faced with environmental conditions that were really horrifying for them to live in. It was NAFTA that allowed Smithfield to set up those operations in La Gloria. So people were displaced also because people who um, had farms who had been raising pigs previously for the Mexican market couldn't do it any longer simply because the price of the hogs controlled by this giant corporation fell so low that, again, they couldn't um, pay for simply the cost of growing them. So um, people got forced out of that valley, and many of them wound up going to work at a huge Smithfield um, hog slaughterhouse in Tar Heel, North Carolina. In other words, people came across the border, they came across most of them without papers because it's really impossible to get visas from, you know, in Mexico that allow people to come to the U.S. and work and live like normal human beings. So people came across the border without papers, and they wound up working for Smithfield's um, huge hog slaughterhouse in Tar Heel, North Carolina, at very low wages. And when when those workers tried to organize a union, Smithfield became one of the most vicious and violent anti-union employers. So in a way, you can kind of see Smithfield benefiting from this kind of international system on both ends of it, because they get to set up their hog-growing facility in Mexico and operate it without environmental restrictions and make money as an investor in Mexico, and the very same people that they displace wind up working in their slaughterhouse at low wages in Tar Heel, North Carolina. So it's really kind of one big system for the production of displaced people um, and the people who are making, you know, or who are taking advantage of it essentially are those um, operations, those corporations and banks at the top of the economic food chain. So talk a little bit about the cost in terms of uh, how this affects and impacts the labor costs of other workers in the region. If you could give us some examples of where that's impacted, perhaps the ability for workers to organize and demand better working conditions. Both Canada and the United States are establishing programs in which these people who are being displaced in Mexico and Central America and the Caribbean come to the U.S. and Canada as what are called guest workers. Guest workers sounds kind of friendly, but it's not, actually. What it really means is that people are um, allowed, in fact, they're recruited to come to work in Canada, for instance, with a visa that says that you can only come to work, and if you're not working, you have to leave. In other words, these aren't visas that encourage people to come and settle in Canada as residents and become part of the community around them and basically treat them like everybody else. It's just a visa to work. And, in fact, the conditions of those visas are pretty brutal. You know, we've had a number of situations in British Columbia and in Ontario in which um, workers have tried to organize, and these are mostly workers who are being recruited to go to work in um, agriculture. 
And so when people have tried to join, for instance, the United Food and Commercial Workers in Canada, um, in a couple of separate occasions, people have been um, fired and then sent back to Mexico and to their home countries, um, essentially for the crime of organizing a union and going on strike. There was a really famous case of this happening in Leamington, Ontario, and there's a, um, a immigrant rights organization in Canada, Justicia for Immigrantes, and Chris Ramsarup, who have been fighting for the rights of guest workers for um, quite a long time. And what um, Chris and the other people in this movement, what they say is that the way these programs are structured is kind of as a way of providing labor to employers in Canada under conditions in which workers have no rights and in which the employers are able to use that labor at a very, very low cost. And that the answer to that is to give people a visa status that's not dependent on people's jobs. In other words, that people can come to Canada or to the United States, for instance, because we have the same kinds of programs with the same intention. People should be able to come and live as human beings. In other words, to work or not work or to um, live where people want to, basically in the same way that any other um, Canadian would be able to do. Um, both the U.S. and Canada need the labor that immigrant workers are providing. But the question is, what are the rights and what's the social status going to be of those people who are providing that labor? It's a sort of a growing international system. You know, we're not just talking about farm workers. Right now, in the Philippines, there are 100 government-certified schools and about another 100 uncertified schools, all of which are training people who are um, well-educated people and the products of the um, educational system of the Philippines to become healthcare workers in Canada. And people get these same kinds of work visas to come to Canada and work in Canadian um, hospitals and in the health care system. Um, and then the Philippine government basically is depending on these people to send money home to support their families in the Philippines, which sort of relieves the Philippine government from responsibility for providing the jobs and the social services that those people need because they become dependent on what are called the remittances being sent home from um, people working in Canada. And at the same time, people are coming to Canada, again, on visas that don't afford people the same kind of social status, political rights, um, economic rights that ordinary people have. And this really affects everybody. If you have a situation, for instance, in which a large number of the workers in a particular area are contributing their work but can't vote, um, that hurts the other workers around them, too. You know, we had a, a, a really important example that I talk about at the beginning of the book, which was what happened at a hotel in Emeryville, California, right near where I live, called the Woodfin Suites. And what happened in that town is that the people of Emeryville passed by what we call here in the U.S. a living wage ordinance. In other words, an ordinance that established a wage that's higher than the state minimum wage for workers, especially in the hotels that are being built in Emeryville, as sort of Emeryville becomes sort of a tourist and bedroom community. And so when the workers in the hotels in Emeryville um, began to enforce that ordinance, or try to, by going to their employers and saying, well, we have this new ordinance here, we expect you to abide by it, and we want our wages to go up, the hotels 
began firing those people that they could find who they could accuse of not having um, immigration papers to work. And so one of the hotels where this happened was a place called the Woodfin Suites. And when the workers at the Woodfin Suites told the management there that they wanted them to live up to this living wage ordinance, um, the management there said to 21 of those workers, well, we don't think that you have any immigration papers here, and unless you can show us some immigration papers, you all are fired. Um, the purpose of doing that was really to terrorize all the workers in all of those hotels so that even though people in Emeryville had voted for this living wage ordinance, Measure C, that it would never actually get enforced. So by firing those 21 workers and scaring the rest of the workers using immigration status, they were denying all of the workers in Emeryville the benefits of this living wage ordinance, regardless of what people's immigration status was. So... You know, when we set up these kinds of um, systems that deny people their rights because of their immigration status, whether people are undocumented or whether they're guest workers, what really happens is that all the people in the community, at least all the working people in those communities, um, suffer the results of it because, you know, that's the reason why these categories really exist to begin with is basically in order to... um, undermine the ability of working people to unite across those lines of race and nationality and um, get a better life and better incomes from the people that employ them. What happens when we allow our governments to make immigration legislations that are assumed to be done in a vacuum, that you know they don't affect a greater hold, and they're not held accountable for the, other, for the impacts that it has in the community? Well, I think what you're pointing to is, is very real, and that is that immigration and the challenges that, that immigration is, is posing for us It's not separate from all the other problems that working people have. Governments and the media institutions especially and the employers, they don't want to accept responsibility for these decisions. And so an easy way of not not accepting responsibility is to essentially demonize people. So if people are unhappy about the high rate of unemployment there, what you do is you point to immigrants and say, oh, they're stealing your jobs. And we're seeing seeing that on a massive level here in the United States. We had the state of Arizona recently that passed a law that that said that not having papers is a crime in and of itself in the state of Arizona. In other words, any police officer or any law enforcement officer can go up to anyone on a street in a city like Phoenix or Tucson and ask them for their immigration papers, and if they can't produce immigration papers, throw them into jail. So, you know, this is kind of like scapegoating on a really very, very dangerous and very, very widespread level. So that's one problem that happens as a result of that. And, of course, in a way, when that happens, you know, employers, they laugh all the way to the bank because instead of trying to figure out how to develop the political power that we need as working people in order to change these policies so the government puts some controls on the activities of these corporations, we are busy fighting each other. We had in California here an auto plant shut down here in Fremont, California, the last auto plant we have west of the Mississippi River that threw 4,500 people out of work. There were other businesses dependent on that auto plant with thousands of other workers and then with their family members, you know, the shutdown of that one auto plant probably affected as many as 100,000 people. You know, that 
was the result of a decision by a giant, two giant corporations, General Motors and Toyota. It didn't have anything to do with immigrants. But we have the rise of, you know, these very conservative racist organizations here in California that are essentially trying to tell working people that the unemployment that's being caused by the massive, you know, economic crisis, you know, caused by the banks or the decision by large auto corporations to shut down auto plants is in reality due to um, competition from other workers. So um, it's not that unemployment doesn't exist and that we don't have to figure out what to do about it. We do. You know, we have 12.5% unemployment in California. We have a governor, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator, who basically wants to do everything to defend the interests of employers and big corporations and is perfectly happy to, you know, use anti-immigrant hysteria to essentially keep working people fighting with each other so that um, we never do get the economic power that we need to solve that problem. And I think that this exists in Canada, it exists all over the United States, it exists in Britain. It's This is a big political problem. I think that it exists in all of the major industrial countries in the world right now. You know, you can kind of see the same rise in anti-immigrant hysteria, whether it's against immigrants living in the suburbs around Paris or whether it's um, the riots in the industrial cities in the British Midlands where, you know, the extent of the closure of factories is way beyond anything that, you know, we've seen, you know, here in the United States or you see it all over the industrial world. So the question is, what do we do about it? We understand the connection between this market economy that's associated to benefit a very few, a uh, handful of corporations, and uh, in the case of the financial industry, a handful of banks, very powerful banks. What do we do? Well, I think that there are three kind of general things that we can do about it, especially if we're looking at the problem of immigration or the migration of people. Um, so the first thing is, is we have to take a look at what's making people poor and displacing people in their countries of origin and change those policies. So we're talking about the North American Free Trade Agreement. We're talking about, you know, the WTO, the meetings of these, you know, wealthy countries that they have where they decide on these economic policies, the result of which is the impoverishment of people in poor countries. So we have to deal with the factors that are causing migration to begin with. The second thing is, is that we have to fight for the rights of migrants in the places where people go. That means that in Canada, for instance, in addition to defending the rights of people who are being deported, and there are a lot of big deport deportation cases I know, and no one is illegal, fights a lot of these deportation cases in um, British Columbia. So fight for the rights of the people who are coming to Canada as migrants, whether they're coming as people who have no papers or people who are part of these guest worker programs or people who are being deported because they're um, Muslim people who are being demonized. They essentially fight for the rights of, of migrants and the people uh, in the countries to which people are going. And the third thing is, is that we have to sort of link these issues to the larger political problems that we have in general. In other words, we need a sort of a a common ground in which we can fight for the rights of immigrants and against these trade policies and link that to the effort in Canada to preserve national health care. Of course, you have it. We don't here in the United States, so we need to get it. And um, fight for jobs programs for all working people, regardless of people's immigration status, for the end to these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that are essentially 
um, bankrupting our countries while they're you know leading to the deaths of you know tens and hundreds of thousands of people in in both of those countries we need to kind of link all of these things together and it's not that we have to link them we just have to see what the connections are because obviously if we have foreign policies that are based on war and the uh, maintenance of a very unfair worldwide economic system then that's a problem for people who are peace activists in Canada, and at the same time, it's a problem for people who are immigrant rights activists who have to deal with the um, impact of those wars in terms of the displacement of people and the fact that people are arriving in Canada as refugees and economic or war refugees um, from those conflicts. Thank you so much for being with us. My guest is David Bacon. He is the author of Illegal People, How Globalization Creates Migration and Criminalizes Immigrants. Thank you again for being with us. How can people access your book? People can get it online from online booksellers like powells.com, or they can go up to my website, and there's links up there for getting it as well, too. And my website address is ddbacon, D-B-A-C-O-N, dot I-G-C dot O-R-G. Thank you again for being with us. My pleasure. Take care. We have come to the end of our program. Latin Waves is a weekly syndicated program available to campus and community radios. Please visit our website, www.latinwavesmedia.com.